hello world. I'm Jen Folsom. I'm a growth leader here at ICF Next, and I'm here on this ICF podcast to talk about rural education, something that is uh, so interesting and so complex and something that really we should all be thinking about, um, and it, particularly in this time of COVID and what a, a crazy time it's been. Um, with me today, I have three guests. I have my colleague, Caitlin Howley, her co-author, Sam Redding from ADI, and they are the co-editors of this book that's so incredible called Cultivating Rural Education, a People-Focused Approach for States. And we also have joining us from Western Kentucky, Janet Throgmorton, who is the principal at Francie Farm Elementary School to really give us that um, boots on the ground perspective of what life in uh, rural education looks like. So thank you all for being here today. Thanks for having us. So Caitlin and Sam, you guys have been working on this book for a long time and it's out there. And, you know, the, the main thesis here is that you propose that rural schools and districts deserve education policies and programs that address their particular needs, their their particular context and their strengths. So, you know, what makes a rural school or district different from schools that are in non-rural places? Well, they're not um entirely different species but they are different in ways that are meaningful um, for policy and practice so here are a few um ways that they are different they often are um, characterized by being uh, geographically remote from larger places um they tend to have sparser populations, and so as a result, they have fewer human and capital resources, but they still have to accomplish all of the things that any school anywhere in the U.S. is required to accomplish. Because they are often in places uh, peopled by smaller populations, they have fewer people available to play all of the roles um, in schools. And so educators are often called upon to play multiple roles. So, you know, they handle several um, student clubs as well as teaching a full course load. And in some cases, driving the bus. Then they also face particular sorts of challenges. Um, for example, difficulty recruiting uh, educators and leaders and uh, teachers, especially in high need subject areas like math or advanced science or foreign language, um, special education. And they face additional kind of contextual constraints like less access to broadband to support um, online learning. And um, because poverty rates are higher in rural places than they are in non-rural places in general, they often lack access to the funds to purchase things like um, specialized instructional space like, like science labs. Um, and have in many cases less capacity and certain um, non-instructional areas like grant writing or evaluation or data management. But I also think another important thing that is sometimes overlooked is that <clears throat> there are rural social dynamics and practices at play in rural schools and districts that are different from those in non-rural places just because of the way that people need to um, interact and engage with each other. Oh yeah, to, how so? 
Yeah, to make community life work. And so um, rural people will tend to have multiplex relationships, which is a fancy way of saying that um, people relate to each other in more than one way. So, for example, we might be neighbors, but also colleagues at the school, and you might be married to the loan officer at the bank who, from whom I need to get a mortgage. So, you know, people depend on each other, and so there's a sort of informality and politeness that um, structures everyday interactions, and that is important to how people work together. Um, and so some things that would work in a larger, more anonymous place don't work in rural um, areas. But of course, I don't Sam. want to work with the strength either. I know, <laughs> so, and I'm going to put that over to Sam. Sam, can you give yeah. me an example of how um, something that might not work in a, in, a, in a more anonymous culture or something that would work in a, in a rural school education system? Well, uh, well, first, one, let me say that what makes a, a question like that difficult is uh, getting an idea of what is it you've got in mind when you say rural. And just yesterday, we had staff here uh, at ADI Home Base in Lincoln, Illinois, some of whom were working with the state of Alaska to develop a rural project, uh, some of whom work with Native American tribes in Idaho and uh, Oklahoma, um, others of whom are working with rural school districts in Alabama and what you start to realize is when you say rural, there's as much uh, variety and difference from place to place as there is between even more as there is between what you'd call rural and what you'd call urban or what you'd call right. Suburban. So right. are you talking like Alaska rural or Illinois rural? They're not the same. Exactly, Got exactly. It. Or Appalachian rural or Mississippi rural or rural. Uh, and, and I think uh, Jennifer Seelig uh, had a chapter in our uh, book on what we called clear view of rural education. And, and that was to say, and we're speaking to maybe state and district education leaders, and they're considering what do we need to be doing to support rural education. We said, well, the first thing you need to do is get a clear view of what you mean by rural education. And even uh, across the state and often within a district, what you mean uh, comes out as a variety so that it's not just one thing. You have a variety of, of settings. And, um, and you know, Jennifer uh, gave a, a little more of an academic uh, definition also to say we can usually look at three different uh, factors or variables, one being economic, what's the economic base of this uh, area, another being demographic and cultural att attributes, who are the people that populate it, and the third is uh, uh, geographic or environmental. So what is the surrounding? So, you know, in your mind, I, uh, I remember a few years ago and I visited Standing Rock uh, uh, Reservation in South Dakota and realized it was like a three hour drive from Bismarck. So you got to, uh, there's a couple hundred miles to the nearest really outside community. Well, that's a whole different element of remoteness among other things, and when I think of rural here in central Illinois, which means agricultural, and it means small town, but it often means very in very close proximity to more medium-sized cities where there might be universities and uh, resources. So uh, I think the first thing we would always encourage is first define what specific rural uh, 
setting community schools you are, uh, are talking about, and then we can go to the next level of what's appropriate for them. I, I, somebody had the quote in, in the book about, instead of saying that you have uh, an approach or a project or whatever that can be applied in many places, uh, think of it as that you would develop something, create something that would apply to a specific place. So it's with the place in mind. And so I think that's one lesson we would certainly echo. And, Sam, and that's really funny because that reminds me of a quip that's attributed to um, a, a rural sociologist whose name, of course, I cannot remember right now. But the quip is, if you've seen one rural community, you've seen one rural community. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great <laughs> one. Well, in fact, yesterday, uh, Caitlin, as you know, the people I'm talking about, so we had them here and they're all enthusiastically describing these projects that they're developing in these different places that they're calling rural. And we kept asking the question, so what's so rural about it? What makes it rural? And mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're talking about schooling and education, a lot of times uh, you're get, it, it's hard to make that differentiation. And uh, what has helped me to understand some of this, our colleague B. Vong has taught us to understand uh, about disproportionately positive effects. In other words, a lot of what you're gonna propose educationally in a rural district, you would say, well, doesn't that sound like good education anywhere? Yeah, but it might be even more powerfully appropriate in a rural setting uh, because mm -hmm. of whatever factors might be uh, limitations or challenges as we can discuss also. And so, you know, Caitlin, I think I cut you off a little bit. You, you, you started talking about some of the differences that may be the challenges of uh, education in rural areas. But what about the strengths? What's positive and good about, um, you know, the educational environment in a rural setting? There's lots of things. And what's what, you know, uh, drives me up a wall is that they are unheralded. Like there's just they should be shouted out and um, celebrated because they are substantial and meaningful. So, for example, there's often this phenomenon in rural communities where the school serves as a kind of community center. I mean, people know the teachers, maybe they're related to them and or neighbors. And the schools are, you know, places where people gather to drop their kids off, but also to talk and to exchange news. And then they maybe they come together in the evening for a game or a fair or some kind of community activity. And, this, and other entities in the community use the school. So there's that, that tight-knit relationship between school and community. I think another thing that's really interesting is that the small size of some rural schools makes it easier to um, implement and scale new programs and practices. There just isn't the sort of bureaucratic complexity that educators might face in other kinds of um, schools and districts. I think, you know, one thing we always keep in mind, the potential for that kind of close-knit community and, and personal ties, the potential is there because people live in close proximity to each other. They, uh, what was uh, Caitlin's fancy term, multiplex relationships. They, they, <laughs> they're in, they work, might work together. They might live uh, in the same neighborhood or in the same uh, rural area. They might go to the same church. They might, they might, they might. But as a sociologist convinced me years ago, a lot of what you assume there's the potential to happen in terms of relationships among people in today, today a lot of that doesn't necessarily happen there has to be a catalyst right. to happen there it has to be 
made to happen by design. And that's a, that's the work of school people and social agency people and youth group people and whatever is making those uh, relationships happen and that and that potential for community to be realized. You know, Sam makes a really good point that um, I I, re I appreciate that rural communities are not sort of um, pre-modern and unsophisticated and out of step with modern life. They, you know, to the extent that our nation has changed, so too do rural communities. And so if we see, you know, sort of this uh, of civic engagement and community closeness eroding large scale, well, that's happened in rural places too. The, the potential is certainly there because of the proximity with which people live um, to each other. But uh, Sam is absolutely right. It requires real effort to make those things happen. And so, you know, what should, you know, you, you, you designed this book, I think, to reach different policymakers at different levels, it's state and regional and local levels. You know, what kinds of policies and programs um, should we be thinking about uh, that are rurally responsive? Well, I, I got. I think Caitlin's going to be a better equipped to, to give you uh, the specifics. But a, a couple uh, general statements is that we talked a lot about also how do organizations that may be regional or state level but have an interest in rural communities, how do they come together to take a look to see what the needs might be? Part of that is well, you got to get to know them. <laughs> I mean, some of it is is a very personal thing, and also is an understanding that each community is different. And and but there has to be a mechanism that brings that into part of the decision making process. If you're developing policies, if you're developing programs, developing projects, how do you bring the rural interest to the table? How do you take it into consideration? So I, I would say that's the beginning of how this begins to happen. Um, in terms of um, ex what I call external agencies, external interests, how they support what you want to happen at a grassroots. So it's not like you want to overstep it, but you want to be catalysts for it. So with that said, then, uh, Caitlin, what are, what are some examples? You know, I'm hesitant to uh, make policy prescriptions without including the voices of the people with a lived experience who will be affected by the policies and programs that are eventually planned and implemented. So, you know, we've talked about how various and diverse rural places are. That's one kind of constraint on making generalized policy prescriptions. Um, another is that because each place is so different, they'll have different needs and contexts. And so, you know, our book really proposes a way to bring people together to um, collectively think about the issues and how they're being addressed currently and how they might be addressed even more fully and collaboratively in the future. Um, I think we could certainly talk about some of the common kinds of issues that rural places face, but the solutions to them, I think, will be uh, best if they're designed by and in partnership with the people who actually live and work there. Yeah, I think in the book you talk a lot about these sort of cross-sector collaborations or community-based collaborations, but why are they so important? Why is it, is it more crucial than in non-rural populations? 
Let me put a plug also for uh, a couple of the authors, the way they approach that very question. And um, I noted that uh, I believe it was Gen Jennifer Seelig and uh, Karen Epley and Shanika Williams. They tended to give examples that were more specific and often school-based. But in, in the chapter that Aaron McHenry Sorber uh, wrote that was on uh, the, the community context, she took a, a longer longitudinal profile of two basically counties in, Virgi in West Virginia and uh, one in Maryland and talked about the interweaving of the various agencies that, uh, that came together uh, for the benefit of uh, rural education, rural youth, rural, rural families. So those are two different perspectives, whether you're looking at more specific uh, project descriptions or you're looking at that larger uh, community context that, uh, that involves a lot of agencies that might include state university, community community colleges, local so social agencies, uh, cooperative extensions, 4-H, youth groups like that. I mean, all of that exists in and around rural areas, but they're not always brought together, woven together for the benefit, particularly of uh, rural education. Um, to my mind, I there there's this weird thing that happens in rural uh, schools sometimes in which rural kids get the impression that to succeed they need to get as much education as possible and because the resources for higher education might not be local that they need to move elsewhere to pursue higher education or some sort of uh, post-secondary training. And then there is a further complication wherein um, then young people perceive that they are overqualified for jobs in their local communities. And so there's this um, kind of uh, compounding uh, effect in which bright young people leave their their rural hometowns and maybe they come back but it results in um increasing out migration so yeah we yeah wanna... that's like a, a brain drain if you will right it's called the brain drain and and we want to ensure that everybody has the experiences educationally and socially to help them you know be their best selves to uh, live full lives and at the same time, we need to engage uh, community and economic development entities to help build opportunity stroke structures locally and regionally that will permit rural young people to stay local if that's what they want to do. And so combining your education improvement efforts with your um, labor and workforce development and economic development opportunities um, will contribute to uh, the sustainability of rural places. And Kayla, this is Janet. It's ironic that you mentioned that. I, I sat on um, a meeting this week with the uh, consulting firm that our local economic development board has put together um, and we, we were addressing just that. They wanted to meet with local educators uh, from elementary all the way through our higher education and technical schools. And those were the issues that we were discussing were how to educate our workforce 
in not this, just that they had to go on to a four-year degree, but that the trades um, were so important uh, to our area and the need was so great for those things. And this is really the first time that our Economic Development Board has reached out to um, the elementary and middle and high school setting um, outside of our technical school uh, to find out how do we go about doing that? How do we go about bringing everyone to the table and getting that workforce, the training and tools and education they need to build the economy here in our own area? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you appreciate that, that uh, involvement. Yes, because I, I said to them in our meeting that, you know, at an elementary level is probably where our families are the most involved in their child's education. So therefore we're communicating and seeing them quite often. And we don't know the things that our economic development board is doing to try to uh, reach those people because they're not reaching them through us. And, and we're the people that they trust. And so we should probably be a part of that communication effort um, in order to open some of those uh, technical training and education opportunities for those families. Well, and I, um, I'm so glad for you to pipe in there, Janet, and it's probably a good opportunity for me to explain how I even know Janet. Um, talk about, you know, your your three degrees of separation in rural communities. I see a little bit of that here in uh, my little neighborhood in Alexandria, and um, I do a little bit of writing for NBC, and I was talking about sort of the impact on professional women and families and workers with COVID, and my good friends who are sisters from Western Kentucky said, oh, you should talk to our friend Janet. Janet. Yeah, Janet was our hero when we were in high school. She was the basketball star. And then she became a teacher and then the administrator of the school where our mom was the principal. You should talk to Janet. So I, uh, I got to talk to Janet about her experience um, during COVID um, of just one of the many challenges. And she's just become a friend and a really interesting person for me to have in my life. And she really talked to me and taught me a lot about, you know, as as school districts and entire communities switch to distance teaching and distance learning, um, you know, the struggle that they had with rural communities and access to broadband. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about your experience, uh, Janet, and what that was like with elementary school students in Fancy Farm, Kentucky, Graves County. Well, it caught us off guard a little bit. We thought we knew technology uh, and we thought actually that we were sitting rather well with the technology that we had, but we were not prepared to uh, teach in one setting while the kids were at home learning in another. And so very quickly we learned uh, that even with the a great computer um, and, and the access of that for kids, if they did not have uh, the broadband access at home, uh, that was very good that uh, we weren't going to be able to do those things with them very well. And uh, many of our families, um, their internet is what they have through their cell phone um, and through that tower that their cell phone's hitting. And so they don't have uh, broadband access, that a line driving straight to their house. And so, uh, so that was definitely a challenge uh, because you were dealing with choppy, uh, service and, and those kind of things. And so, uh, you know, that's where that interdependence of a local rural community becomes so important because our local uh, telephone company, 
uh, stepped up and put um, some Wi-Fi outside each elementary building in our area. Um, and then even for our city school district, they, they did the same thing so that uh, families could at least drive to a place to get um, internet access through the Wi-Fi um, and hopefully be able to participate in that way. Uh, we were able to send some hotspots home with kids, but um, you know, when you don't have great cell service, which is unfortunately a huge issue uh, in our area, in lots of rural areas, um, you know, it's amazed me we can put Mars rover on Mars and communicate with it daily, uh, but we can't have decent cell service in rural areas. And so, um, so that became, you know, an issue. And so we eventually reached the point where we just opened our building to part of the students who did not have that access at home and they were able to come into the building and use the uh, Wi-Fi that we have here um, to be able to continue their learning. And, you know, we were we were trying to reach in to them as much as we could uh, with food and supplies and just different things that, that their needs that needed to be met. Um, and even for the families, because some of the families uh, for their work, we're using our school um, computers and technology services to be able to continue to work from home. So it, it was definitely um, a learning experience for all of us and, and an eye opener even to our uh, policymakers and, and representatives that um, we're not doing a great job of ensuring that there's equal access um, to those technology uh, tools and the broadband uh, we're just we kind of reach a place and stop and we don't make sure that it's affordable and available for everyone that at that time needed it everybody yeah and janet you mentioned it's not just the broadband right i remember you making some house calls to provide some uh on-site it support for laptops and switching out the ones that don't work and and that sort of thing so it was really about sort of the broader digital literacy Yes, because we have a lot of students that are being raised by their grandparents, uh, some even their great grandparents, and um, you know they uh, had never zoomed or uh, done anything such as that, and so there there was that gap of learning for them and how do they even help the kids uh, to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish. So yeah, we had to to go out into the homes and meet on the front porch, uh, you know, due to COVID sometimes, uh, and try to help them figure out uh, how it works and what to do and how to turn things in and how to make sure their kids are doing the things that they need to do and replace equipment because, you know, things would quit working. Um, so it was, it was definitely um, a great effort by our families uh, to, to buckle down and and learn what to do with the technology, you know, and, and all of our staff to assist families in the technical side of it, you know, over the phone and in different ways, um, you know, but yeah. it, it was hard. For sure. And then, you know, Caitlin and Sam, what are you seeing across the country in terms of like, what have we learned um, about the correlation to education and broadband and, and our rural communities, communities over the last year and a half? Well, a couple things. First of all, because I just spoke to the people yesterday working in Alaska, is to not assume that rural or even remote means lack of broadband. Some places, because of those uh, contexts, have for years kind of been out front in it. But other places are pockets that where it hasn't been strong. 
And um, as Janet has relayed, we kind of had to do a lot of catching up. Uh, the one thing I I live just about 15 miles from where my uh, from a little uh, school district, Hartsburg Emden, which has two buildings and graduates about 15 kids a year from its high school. But my daughter teaches there and I have grandkids in the district. So I, I had a keen eye on it and was trying to kind of write up the experience with COVID. And what made me so gratified and so kind of sentimentally proud of both public and uh, public public education and rural communities, both. Uh, and I know this happened all over the country, but almost immediately, as soon as, as the COVID thing hit and we knew we were kind of locked down and kids were stuck at home, the uh, cooks still came to school and prepared sack lunches and the bus drivers charged up their buses and took on the sacks and, and they grabbed up whatever laptops they could find and they delivered them around to schools. Everybody just kind of uh, jumped to the task. And um, I think a lot of that is just characteristic of the hearts of, uh, of teachers. And But it's also, I think, reflective of, of how rural communities can pull together in uh, situations like that. Yeah, absolutely. I was so encouraged to hear Janet tell me that when they didn't have enough you know, PPE, this, the local churches were sewing masks and, right. you know, Janet, Janet's the bus driver also, and both of her bus drivers co contracted COVID. So, uh, and when I, um, I, I often was a little jealous, frankly, I, you know, my, my children attend, uh, I think the fifth largest school district in the country that was like Sarah in the Titanic to be responsive. And I was so impressed with how uh, her smaller school district was able to be very responsive to their very individual family and students needs. In terms of sort of lived experience, Janet, uh, you had a lot of these challenges over COVID. Like, can you point out a couple of sort of things that you never thought you would have to encounter as an administrator um, and how you solved that and the sort of lessons we've learned? And then I'll turn it over to Caitlin and Sam to see what they've, they've learned um, in addition to that. Well, one thing, um, just the, um, preparedness that we did not have when we exited school in March, all of a sudden, um, you know, that we weren't as prepared as we thought we were, um, as far as even our teacher's ability to um, run class via the internet. Um, you know, our kids adapted much quicker than we did because that was their world. You know, they were FaceTiming constantly with friends and doing those kind of things. And so, you know, we definitely caught up on that uh, by the time it was time to go back to school in the fall uh, and, and figured out how to do that well. Um, I think one of the huge pieces uh, was the mental health piece. Um, you know, you, you I think I think our families didn't realize how much their mental health depended on their kids being in school every day. And um, but the other piece is. Um, when everyone is confined at home, uh, you know, when parents were trying to work from home or they were laid off from their jobs, um, it could get pretty intense. And, um, you know, we were trying to find ways to deal with that for families. Um, you know, when we were able to bring just small numbers of kids into schools, you know, the, the state's first push out for that was for those uh, kids that you were concerned about academically. But then we also started to look about 
look at those kids that we were concerned about um, emotionally. Um, and not just for their mental health, but for their parents as well. And, you know, who did we need to bring in because those parents needed a break? Um, and some of those were our families where it were grandparents, um, you know, raising several grandchildren or something along that line. And, uh, you know, some of them, it was, we were taking food out to the homes, but, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily always hot meals. So we were also looking at the families that we knew there may not be a lot of hot meals happening there. And so um, those were some of the kids that we invited uh, to come in. And, you know, just I had parents that, you know, reached out after the fact and said that was a lifesaver because I, I was at a breaking point. Um, and then trying to find help for them beyond that. And, and that's still uh, something we're dealing with, uh, trying to um, find ways for not just our students, because we can bring people into the school building and, and counselors and do some of those things with our kids when we have them here. But, um, but we also have families that are struggling and suffering and, and trying to find ways to meet the mental health needs of um, those when it's not real accessible in our area. There aren't a lot of adult counselors. There aren't a lot of adult psychologists um, that we could send families and parents to uh, for that help. And so that's a challenge we're facing right now, something I never thought um, we would be tackling as educators. Um, but as a pivotal piece of the community and the area, a lot of families, that's all they know who to go to. So we, we're, we've tried to work to meet those needs. That's right. And Caitlin, are you seeing the same thing at the national level like across? I mean, there, uh, we've learned that there are no two rural areas that are the same, but is this a common theme? Yeah, it is a huge uh, theme and commonality. Um, I think it's become really clear that we need each other um, and that schools are vital connective tissue for communities um, of all shapes and sizes, rural, non-rural, um, small or large. And what has been so heartening, it has been to see that teachers, students, school leaders, and community people saw it ever more clearly as a result of the constraints imposed by COVID. Um, so Janet's work is remarkable. And so is the work of so many rural educators across the nation. And um, I think that, you know, we sort of have gold in our midst here um, in, in these places that just leaned into making it all work for students and families. And, uh, you know, I hope that, that educators are um, appreciated for their Herculean efforts. And as the, as the daughter of a public school educator, um, you know, I think that they're never given enough credit for some of the hardest jobs in the world. And, you know, I gotta be honest, um, I'm a little bit worried about what the numbers look like, you know, in many of the rural areas, as I'm looking at um, some of ICF's vaccine hesitancy research that we do with HHS, um, there are a lot of rural areas with lower vaccine 
penetration rates um, and we're trying to get schools opened. What is one thing that each of you would make an ask to your communities, to your elected leaders and policymakers? Uh, what's one thing given this increase in the Delta variant um, that you wanna put out there to, to the world just so that we can get everyone safely and uh, healthily back to school this fall? Well, I think you said it. I mean, we're mostly concerned about the pockets where there is a low percentage of vaccination. Uh, the little rural district that I told you about where my daughter teaches is also uh, the community where her husband, my son-in-law, uh, is a tractor mechanic and the implement dealer. And he was on a ventilator for three months, uh, unconscious, near death from COVID. Oh and uh, my daughter spent the time she spent with him, her colleagues, the other teachers donated uh, sick days to enable her to be with him. And he came through it. But I would think anybody that saw that in that uh, town and that surroundings, I cannot imagine why they would not want to get uh, vaccinated. But I know there's still some of that resistance. And um, that is probably the biggest thing we all need because I, I think rural kids particularly had so much to lose because so much of the value of them being in a rural community and a rural school were the close personal relationships, the opportunities for a lot of experiences and extracurriculars, the chance to really know their teachers and know each other. And a lot of that was what they lost when they were confined to home and, uh, they weren't in a face-to-face -face relationship. So the fact that rural communities kind of stepped to the fore and made up for a lot of that, I think is great, but I think those kids still also had a lot to lose because what they lost was uh, what was is of most value, I think, in those communities. I think that rural people get uh, a little exhausted um, by the stereotypes. And so my recommendation would be for people who are respected in each community to speak respectfully with, with their neighbors about um, what their fears are, what their hesitance is, and to provide them with some um, clear information to address their concerns and fears. And I think that, you know, the way that people work is as uh, more people around you do something, you are more inclined to also do it. And so there's a an, uh, an element of, of uh, community spread in the positive sense of everybody, of more and more people getting the vaccine. Yeah, there's a, uh, Kayla, I'm reminded, uh, I think it's in Aaron's chapter, the, the term boundary spanners, when she talks about how your school mm -hmm. board members, your superintendent, your principal, your teachers, the people that are part of your school are also part of the community. And so they're they're expanding those boundaries of what constitutes a school, what constitutes a community. And uh, they are uh, have, have the potential to be the great ambassadors in that kind of personal uh, carrying of the message and communicating it and doing a heck of a lot of listening. Uh, and I think you're right. That's how this is going to happen. And Janet, I'll, I'll close with you. What's one big ask that you have to your community and to policymakers to help you be successful? Boots on the ground, foot on the gas pedal of the school bus, stuffer of all the lunches, and uh, and, and leader of your of your elementary school. What's one big ask? I just think that there be that equal opportunity, opportunity access, and information 
you know, we're out here. It, it takes more money to sometimes get things to us. Um, but, you know, what we can produce in the end is, is worth the effort. Um, and, you know, we're, we're educating kids as well, sometimes if not better uh, than other school districts, uh, because we know how to use the resources that we have efficiently. Um, and so that, and that they would visit our places, you know, and, and see what goes on and what, what's real. Um, because I think we have a lot to offer and a lot to learn, even from them and about the policies and, and the whys in the way they do things. Um, but just to, just to even educate our public, um, you know, even in COVID and other things, just um, with all of the information and the opportunity and the access to everything that everyone else has. Well, that's great. And uh, Janet, I, I continue to be in awe of the incredible work that you and your staff do and that all our rural educators are doing to get through this incredibly challenging time that is not quite over. Um, and Caitlin and Sam, thank you for, you know, in your in your free time, writing and editing this book that's so important that covers so much of our country. So thank you again. Check out the book, Cultivating Rural Education, a People-Focused Approach for States. And thank you to ICF for hosting this podcast.